Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Sam Weaver, a junior fellow at ARI. Ayn Rand was an admirer of the Romantic School of Art. She considered her own works to be in the tradition of the Romantic School, and she wrote a book uh, in which she talked a lot about Romanticism called The Romantic Manifesto. Today, I'm, I will be interviewing a couple of experts to talk about Romantic art and Ayn Rand's relation to Romanticism. Uh, so I'll introduce now my uh, guest for this show. Uh, we have Dr. Harry Benzwanger, who is a member of ARI's board of directors. He was a longtime student of Ayn Rand and a friend of hers. Uh, he's the author of many works and, and courses on philosophy, including the book, How We Know. And relevant for this discussion, he wrote a chapter on the objectivist aesthetics, uh, art and the needs of a conceptual consciousness in the book, A Companion to Ayn Rand. And my other guest is Shoshana Milgram, uh, Associate Professor of English at Virginia Tech. Uh, she has also written many essays and, and given many talks about Ayn Rand, her, uh, Ayn Rand's life, her works, and the works of many other authors, including uh, authors in the Romantic movement like Victor Hugo. Uh, both guests are also members of the Ayn Rand University faculty. Uh, and they will be speakers at an upcoming conference this fall about romantic art called Resurrecting Romanticism, Celebrating Romanticism in Music and the Visual Arts, uh, which will be held in Spartanburg, South Carolina, October 7th through 9th. So we'll talk about romantic art and Ayn Rand's relationship to it, and we'll give some preview of what uh, you will learn if you attend that conference. So where I want to begin is by asking about why people should be interested in what Ayn Rand has to say about art and about romanticism. I'm particularly thinking about people who have enjoyed Ayn Rand's fiction, been inspired by her novels. Why should they be interested in what she had to say about art, what her ideas, her philosophy of art were? How can it uh, benefit those people uh, to learn more about it? Can I answer that one first? Because I have a sure. story to tell. In, I first read Ayn Rand in 1962, but a little less than a year earlier, I went after high school in 61 to Europe. I went to the great art museums of Europe and they went completely over my head. I, uh, was only interested in non-objective modern art because I loved anything modern to me that meant the future and technology and progress. So I looked only at, uh, aside from some obedient glances at the Sistine ceiling and so forth, only at the non, what I would now regard as non-art. And shortly thereafter, I read Ayn Rand and I read uh, her, well, I, I heard lectures on her aesthetics and I understood what art was trying to do and what it meant. And it completely changed my uh, outlook where now I could appreciate, I'm talking about painting and sculpture. Now I got them and I, when I went back to Europe some years later, I was overwhelmed by what I saw. Now, uh, I had matured 
in the intervening period because I was 16 turning 17 when I went the first time. But understanding what art does and means, it opens the door to an appreciation of the things that don't of themselves bowl you over. Perhaps you could argue I should have been bowled over, but uh, I wasn't. Okay. okay. Well, I don't have a story about going to Europe and not understanding things, but I, I think that there are maybe two ways to think about why it's interesting and valuable to understand, to read, to think about what Ayn Rand had to say about art. Uh, for one thing, she uh, does, as Harry was saying, tell us something about what art is as opposed to what it isn't. And this was uh, very interesting to me, not just because I've always uh, loved the arts and especially the art of literature, but because when I discovered Ayn Rand, I was in college and I was learning many interesting things about in my classes, but sometimes what I was learning, I would have to re-understand or uh, adjust in order to make a connection between what I was learning and what I was seeing. And one very excellent thing about Ayn Rand is that her ideas about art are related to, especially to her own art. And so it was a really good match there. And especially, you know, thing of art in general, the, the notion that art, you know, it's a cliche that it's, it's not there to teach. Obviously you do learn many things from art, but you don't learn from art in the way that you learn from the newspaper, from a history book. What is it that you are learning from art? And well, she, she explains it better than I do in the Romantic Manifesto, and that was very valuable. What is this? What am I getting from this? It's not a window on the past. It's not information about history. It's not sociology. It's not even psychology as such, but it serves the needs of consciousness, and it's a creation. So that was very valuable. And then she also had her own explanation, definition of the essence of romantic art, and that was interesting to me. It was my, I was learning about romantic uh, literature, more literature than the other arts. And one of the things that was very clear was that people seemed to be defining romanticism in terms of what it wasn't. And I found it very useful that she understood that historical context of romanticism versus classicism or romanticism versus naturalism, but she also got to a philosophical essence of what it was and not simply what it wasn't. And given that what she thought it was about romantic art, it's uh, based on the premise that uh, human beings have the faculty of volition. What's more important than that? Well, it, it related romantic art to the most important thing about being human. So art wasn't simply entertainment. Well, it is entertainment, but it wasn't simply a side issue or what you do when you're not um, engaged in your life, but it was about the essence of life. So. Well, for me, that was very meaningful. And I think that even without the arts or literature being your profession, that's a good perspective to have in terms of what you can enjoy and what you can look for when you are fortunate enough to be exploring and enjoying and appreciating and appraising a work of art. So that's, that's, uh, and in, in, I guess you could say that a side issue, or maybe it's not such a side issue, but since she was herself the, the greatest of literary artists, 
knowing what she had to say about what art is and what romanticism is, these help you get even more out of her own work, which is a blessing, which yeah. is one of the reasons why you can read it for 50 years and not finish. You know, I taught uh, a class on aesthetics. I took a class on aesthetics, the philosophy of art in college. And I was amazed at how little there is known uh, except for the two giants, Aristotle and Ayn Rand. But the rest of the history of the philosophy of art is pathetic. It doesn't have hardly any relationship to what you see in uh, the visual arts or here in music. And the meaning of it all is just missed by most of the standard uh, aestheticians. So I think it's really uh, worth getting acquainted with Ayn Rand's philosophy of art and Aristotle's poetics, a very short essay, is among his greatest works. Yeah, so both of you have, have mentioned some of Ayn Rand's insights in, into art already. And one thing that I think has come up already is her view that art is a need of our consciousness. And I think maybe for people who aren't as familiar with her philosophy of art, that might be a good, a good place to start in understanding, you know, why she uh, views art the way she does and why she finds romanticism to be such a great value. So why does Ayn Rand think art is something we need? What's her explanation of that? Well, there are well, two. Go ahead. I really, think, I really think that people should just read what she has to say instead of getting uh, my, because I, I mean, I could open up the book and read it to you, but quite seriously, yeah, one of the things I don't, do I don't like to do is to filter. So you can filter if you, if you want, but really uh, people are interested, go read the cycle of epistemology of art. Uh, she's got a definition of art. She talks about how it serves the conceptual needs of the hum of the cognitive faculty, contemplating outside yourself, um, your values, integrated some of man's basic values. But she says it. I mean, I'm obviously quoting there, but she really does it so much better that it's um it almost feels uh, to just quote it as inadequate as um, summarizing a work of art itself and saying, well, in three sentences, this is what it is. So. Harry, you can give it a try, but um, yeah, I really think I, you I, just go and I'm read it. To, I'm going to jump in where wise men fear to tread, because I'm going to talk, uh, I'm just going to talk on the meta level, as you call it, on, on a level of abstraction larger than the actual theory, which you have to look at. There's two uh, sources of need for art in her theory. One is emotional, one is inspiration, emotional fuel, she calls it. And there's an explanation that's very beautiful about how art can prevent you from losing your bigger perspective in the vicissitudes of daily existence. The other is psychoepistemological. And that has to do with the fact that our most important abstractions are abstract. So we have a need to see them concretized. 
made concretely real. So the two, there's a cognitive need and an emotional need that art fulfills. Of course, they're two sides of the same coin. And I read the psychoepistemology of art and the goal of my writing for uh, in the Romantic Manifesto, Manifesto for the perfect expression of these ideas. Okay, well, so, you're certainly right about those two, but she says it's so much better and so powerful. And I'm sorry, Harry, you know, you, you, you gave us the headings and that's important. And what saying an that insult. There are what an insult. Okay. I'm not as eloquent as Ayn Rand. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You can put that All on right. my tombstone. Not, he was not yeah. as eloquent as Ayn Rand. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I certainly am not either, which is why I don't want people to take us as a substitute for Ayn Rand. Sure. And I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think pe people want to really immerse themselves in these ideas. They should read the Romantic Manifesto uh, to really get her whole presentation. Uh, but I think it's it, it's still good for us to set the context for the conversation about romanticism to s say a little bit about why she thinks art is a human need. And maybe we can now go from that to um, Shoshana, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago her view that romanticism is based on the, the premise that we have free will. Um, so I'm I'm interested in how that conceptualization of what is romanticism as as a type of art, how that relates to those issues of why we need art. Like is this why does having free will affect those values that we can get? from experiencing art. Right. Well, because as, as Harry was saying, it, you know, it's a condensed version of a, a view of life and the romantic art gives you a picture of life in which people can choose their values, pursue their values, achieve their values, or make choices that defeat or betray their possibilities of achieving their values. You know, as I keep using that word values, but you know, the the, the notion of values and volition are related. That's uh, volition is about making choices, about pursuing values, and romantic art is about life. Um, I think she, she motivated and dominated by values, in which choices are uh, effective and important, and she calls it a moral sense of life. Well, that that uh, depends one's what a particular work of art will present will depend on what the artist sees as a moral view of life but all romantic artists are in in Ayn Rand's sense are concerned with big subjects you know sometimes people talk about his big game and that's 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 a very powerful idea that this is um this is important it's about what's important and that you should be spending your time with and and of course for her even a small subject could in fact be about what's important one of her early short stories you probably know this one is about it was called good copy and it doesn't i mean it's not it's it's not like her novels about the whole state of the world but it's about life being worth living and being interesting so these are these are um, small concretizations of 
the pursuit of values, but they're important. They're important because when you present them in a shaped form and art is shaped, then what you're saying is you can look at this, you can think about it. Here it is for you to contemplate. And that's exciting. Now, you notice I'm talking about literature, not talking about painting and music. And one of the um, virtues I think of the conference is that you're gonna be hearing from people who do know more about these things than I do. And we'll make uh, connections between the points Iran makes about art and about her own art and literature and how these principles are at work in nonverbal art, which is, uh, which is going to be an, an extension and something new and something that she wrote about, you know, she mentions, you know, there are a lot of references in here, including the art and cognition article has quite a bit about the other arts, but there are more, con there will, so to speak, be more concretes and more illustrations of that in the days we're gonna spend in Spartanburg than we're accustomed to seeing. And I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that sparks a couple of thoughts that I'd like to go into. Uh, first, I think we ought to give some concrete examples of romanticism in the various fields. And in literature, of course, Ayn Rand's own novels, but something like Cyrano de Bergerac, which many people are familiar with, is certainly romantic. And um, I think the Terence Radigan plays, which connects with the second thought I wanted to make, um, are basically romantic. The Winslow Boy is certainly romantic. I was just looking at the Browning version bef before this uh, talk, because you said even a small subject can be treated in a big way. And that is a tremendous example. It's a little narrow study of one teacher who has an important uh, event occur in his own life, more or less inside his own head, but in relation to a student. Uh, it's very dramatic, but the, the big subject is repression and values, the role of values, the role of communication to another young mind for a teacher. The little subject is a British Greek scholar in a secondary school in England who has a long uh, series of failures, but has one success in the climax that redeems everything. Uh, so it can be a, it doesn't have to be a man going on strike to change the philosophy of the world. It can be a, a, a little uh, vignette that illustrates a great principle of music. I think very clear what is uh, romantic and there's a period uh, stemming from late Beethoven to through Rachmaninoff, maybe Prokofiev, early Prokofiev. And if you think of Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Chopin, Brahms, that kind of grand, emotional, sweeping, lyrical, personal, and, and yet large themed music, 
as opposed to say Baroque music, which I don't care for. Some people really like it, but it's it moves within a narrow square according to uh, principles of almost classical uh, following the rules kind of uh, music. And the Romantic era in music was a rebellion against that and it broke all the conventions, and created new forms. Or in architecture, I would call Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture romantic and contrast that to what came before classical or Victorian or um, what a Romanesque in particular is very rigid and stolid. So it's an emphasis on emotionality, color, drama, excitement, which means values and value conflicts. Darks and the lights, you know, whether it's visual or in the events of a story or in music. Big contrast to illustrate the important things in life, that there are things that are important and sacred in life. That's what romanticism is about, as opposed to the conventional, the small scale, the humdrum of uh, some art. Um, you know, the uh, movie Marty. What do you want to do tonight, Marty? I don't know. What do you want to do tonight? And it, that movie has some value, but it's it shows characters motivated by feelings they don't know the source of. In romantic literature, as Tora Buckman pointed out, the characters act consciously. They act that part, free will is the choice to be conscious and they take control of their lives. They have purposes. They do things for reasons as opposed to naturalistic or so-called realistic uh, literature in which people are moved by urges they can't explain and that they aren't in control of and they find themselves doing things they wish they weren't doing. Uh, that's the polar opposite of the romantic spirit. And it comes I down to free will. Sure. Well, I think that's a really good set of examples. And I'm really glad you mentioned the Browning version because along with Cyrano de Bergerac, they're very different plays, but what you have with both of them is a kind of pride and self-assertion, and I know who I am, and I know what I did. And of course, Crocker Harris, he doesn't have the swagger of Cyrano, but what he does have, you know, he reaches his epiphany, he understands Taplow's reaction uh, to him, and he talks to him about the Browning version, the translation that he did, and that is more meaningful to him than the way that his his wife has been betraying him and diminishing him. And well, you, you remember how it works out. He he makes a yeah. he makes a statement. He makes a decision, and he says maybe an anticlimax would not be such a bad thing. And of course, it's not an anticlimax after all, right? But he's going to give that speech, and um, you know, and in Cyrano. Also, he admits that in certain existential ways, he's not triumphant, but that spiritually he has. So 
it's a weird thing that the two of them are in a certain sense closer than you might think. You, would, you probably wouldn't imagine using the same actors to play both parts. And yet part of the, the drama of the Browning version is that this man right in front of us, uh, you know, rises to certain heights. And uh, well, art is in, in a way, you, the thing itself is what you're experiencing. You know, the painting right in front of you, the music as the minutes are going by, the play as the minutes are, and, and every page in the book. And, and it's the experience as opposed to the summary. So you get to live it. And that's, that's what's exciting. I, I'm really glad you mentioned the Browning version because it is true that it's about repression, but it's uh, fundamentally also about self-respect, you know, and, and his reclaiming what his values were. And he was a great classical scholar. And that's why this mattered to him, even though he wasn't as popular with the students as the athletics guy, but um, he did, he, he knew what he wanted to teach and he did not fail as thoroughly as his wife might think. She, a lot of things I she doesn't know. Something that's fascinating in, in looking back at it that I didn't remember was that the wife makes a statement to the friend that the, I don't want to give it away, but the act of a student that Crocker Harris breaks down and sobs over in gratitude was maybe a phony. And she's going to tell him, tell her husband that, that, uh, oh, he's just doing that. So you won't think badly of him for his doing an imitation of you, which you might hear about. So she's trying to take it away from him. And the friend says, I'm through with you, who she's having an affair with actually. And she can't believe it. But, Suddenly, you know, he completely changes. If you're capable of this, taking away the one shining moment in a man's whole life, you are a monster. And I don't want anything to do with you. And I thought that was a great concretization of the role of volition and of conscious thinking in the course of one's life. Yeah, and he, he offers his, his allegiance to the man, you know, to, to Crocker Harris. So I guess what you could say there is that, you know, you've got Crocker Harris and you've got his wife who is a negative example and both of them are inspiring in different ways, except that the wife inspires if I've got to stay away from her. And she, and she is completely evil. Um, you know, she's a, she's a dream killer. And you have the notion and, and Crocker Harris as well, you know, she also is disappointed, but that doesn't, justify what she's turned into and uh and so as you say the the lover is through with her and um yeah I, like yeah that, she's yeah. yeah i mean because it's a short play a and yet everybody's re everybody's interesting taplow's interesting the student yeah 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 but i think that what you said before which is true is that even a, a subject that might superficially appear to be small the characters uh, can rise to the occasion and be extraordinary yes. in the moment we see them. And that's one of the things I've always thought of as uh, something that emphasizes volition as important and effectual and people can 
it matters. It affects things. It's not just that people can sit there and deliberate, but that what they decide matters. It's as if sometimes there's a spotlight on the moment of choice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 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 Now, of course, in when you're looking at music, it's going to be different, which is something I'm expecting to hear more about. And yeah. um, and, yeah. and with art and with art and sculpt, you know, painting, sculpture, it's going to it's going to be different. Uh, we don't have a story in the same sense. We don't have language always to help us. But um, one thing that was interesting, I, I guess we haven't told you that the reason I got invited to go along on this uh, adventure, even though it's highlight, it's about the, the visual arts and about music, which are not my my fields at all. But um, David Derry's opera is based on an O. Henry story, and O. Henry's one of my people. And he was one of Ayn Rand's people, people. And Ayn Rand even said that he's very expressive of the spirit of romanticism. And I, let me see, I think I've even got that. Um, she, she said that, uh, I'm quoting here, philosophically romanticism is a crusade to glorify man's existence. Psychologically is experienced simply as the desire to make life interesting. But I like that. That sounds simple, but mm -hmm. Yeah, life, life is interesting. You don't have to make it interesting, but to show how it's interesting. And then she says, this desire is the root and motor of romantic imagination. I'm still quoting. Its greatest example in popular literature is our man, O. Henry, whose unique characteristic is the pyrotechnical virtuosity of an inexhaustible imagination, projecting the gaiety of a benevolent, almost childlike sense of life. And she says he represents the spirit of youth, uh, the expectation of finding something wonderful around all of life's corners. Well, there's That's an O. Henry story, and the operetta is based on that. And it's going to be my job to talk about it before we see it without spoiling everything, just saying. Now, of course, O. Henry's good enough that even after you've read him many times, you are not completely spoiled because you've still got, you know, the writing and the characterization and... Um, it's a, he's a clever writer and a lot of the, the words come from O. Henry. And so I'm gonna, you know, I'll talk about O. Henry and then we'll see this musical rendition um, with real people singing the parts. It's a very, it's a very interesting story. I think um, I, I, I got a look at the, um, it was originally published in Collier's and I found, I found something in the story that's related to the conference that I haven't even told the organizers about. I'll, I'll reveal it when we get there. Um, but um, it, it, the story has, is, is worth, worth your time and, um, and it's certainly worth being uh, rendered in music. I think that'll be fun. I couldn't have done it, but um, I'm certainly happy to have other people do it for me. You ought to give Pam a chance to ask a question. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, I, I really enjoyed hearing uh, about all these examples because I think you're bringing out a lot of like the things that you notice in works of art that uh, are present distinctively in romantic art. Um, but I, what, what I think I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about now is, um, so romanticism is, is to often talked about as a, as a movement or a, a period in the history of art. It's something that like is people see it as it came about at a certain point in time. And 
I'm curious what what your thoughts or what you can share from Ayn Rand's insights into this uh, about where did romanticism come from? Like what made it possible for it to come to be? And why did it come about at this particular time, like around the beginning of the 19th century, uh, as opposed to any other time in history? Well, you, you can, I, I think that one of the things that Ayn Rand says is that they, uh, you know, it's obviously related to some particular individuals. It's related to the, the Enlightenment, it's related to freedom, it's related to those revolutions, and that a lot of the people who were uh, romantics and the movements are somewhat different in the different fields, but they didn't necessarily know what the essence was of what they were doing. And mm -hmm. that's often the case with not just with artistic movements, but with political movements and other kinds of movements. And one of the things I love uh, about what she did is that she said, well, this is what really was going on, whether or not the artists knew it. And you can even see how there could be some confusion because if an artist who is individualistic in spirit, is celebrating individualism, the artist could think of it as, well, I'm doing my own thing, you know, non-conforming, rebelling, unconventional, and so on. But if what that artist is, is someone who is interested in the individual soul and the drama of the soul, and well, Victor Hugo, right, he talks about the tempest in the skull, it's going to be related to volition, even if he would not have articulated it that way. I think that's that's pretty fair to say that um, often artists don't think, aren't able to express uh, the essence of what they're doing as well as Ayn Rand could. So I, I think that's why I'm actually more great, grateful that she said what she did because when you go, when I go back and I say, all right, well, actually, it's not surprising to see that, uh, the, well, among other things, it's something that's associated with emotions. Well, emotions can, there can be bad emotions. There can be emotions that are based on the mob and doing what everybody else is doing and looking right and left and taking a poll and so on. But in fact, if um, celebration of the personal not that far from the idea of, well, it's my soul and it's my mind and it's my choice. So it can come back to that. I think that's, that's one reason why she's not completely off the map in what she's saying, even if what, she's, what, she, uh, what she expresses is not with the others. And partly also there's something of a vacuum in that if you look up definitions of romanticism, you see many different things. One that I always thought made some way of capturing it is that it's beyond, you know, it's the extreme, it's beyond coloring outside the lines, but that can also be a negative thing. On the other hand, if um, I think it's fair to say that if you're exercising volition, you're not going to be trying on purpose to take a poll and do what everybody else is doing. That's probably not what your individual independent choice on the basis of your values would be. So that's why the romantics, whatever they thought they were doing, uh, often ended up doing what she said, you know, cele celebrating choices and making life interesting.
and exciting. Uh, let me give you a philosopher's uh, perspective. Volition is reason. Reason is the faculty that's volitional and volition is the choice to exercise reason. Okay. At this period, reason had triumphed over religion. That's the enlightenment, it's called the age of reason. Since then, we've backtracked. But at that point, the first, I mean, all the shackles are being broken. The first atheist, avowed atheists, uh, came to light some of the philosophes in France. And uh, John Locke was pretty agnostic about religion and said, even if you, be you believe, it's your mind that has to decide to believe, which I think is a wonderful point. Um, so reason is a faculty of the individual. It just is, and you can't deny that. So along with celebrating reason and being convinced that you don't have to bow your head and wait for the revelation, comes an emphasis on individuality. And it's often said that Napoleon was the first worshiped individual as a genius, but we get the idea of the individual man who stands alone and is a genius and it is his own truth, so to speak. That's essential to romanticism. So uh, Ibsen, an enemy of the people, uh, and many other uh, high noon, you know, to go way forward. But this idea of the, of the in, Howard Rourke is the, is the great expression. The, the person who stays true to his own mind's judgment in the face of tremendous social pressure is something that would be inconceivable earlier. Even the Greeks who had great heroes, it wasn't an issue of the individual versus the state or the society, forget the state, other people. It was more the individual versus fate or the gods. Uh, and and um, incidentally, you asked about, is it a historical period? Ayn Rand said that you couldn't call the Greeks, uh, Greek sculptures romantic. It would be an anachronistic. And also in content, they were not individualized enough. So if you look at, say, uh, Michelangelo's sculpture, they're particular people. I mean, some of them are him that he puts into his sculptures. Uh, they, but they are individualized, and that's one of the movements of the Renaissance away from the medieval uh, worldview is that the individual comes to fore, and with the individual comes the choice of values guided by his own spirit, his own mind. Uh, that came about by the liberation of reason from mysticism, and that's what began under Thomas Aquinas when they recovered the Aristotelian uh, manuscripts and he synthesized it with Christianity. But it really reaches its flowering in what's known as the Age of Reason, which is the Enlightenment, which is the period just before and leading into these uh, great romantic artists that we celebrate because you have to have the philosophical work done by the philosophers before the 
artists can grow up with that in their soul and be uh, individualistic and, and romantic in their own expression. What's very interesting to me is how it changes as philosophy becomes pessimistic in the 1800s. A little later, the romantic art becomes negative. It's still romantic, but it becomes tragic. So we have the uh, Sturm und Drang uh, movement in German romanticism. We have uh, the, uh, even the later Beethoven becomes turgid. And that's much earlier, but um, you don't have things like the butterfly etude anymore as you go into, you know, 1870, 1880. It generally, in the music, it gets more uh, wrought up and, and, and malevolent. And so does the painting. Well, it goes in two directions. It goes to the, um, what's that word? Frou-frou. Uh, uh, sentimental. It becomes sentimental and lightweight, which is no longer romanticism. And it becomes negative and uh, grotesque in, in, uh, in the other direction, which is leaving romanticism. So it's well, philosophy. I guess, okay. What you say is that's, it's certainly true that volition itself is about reason. The reason, I, the reason I was uncomfortable in associating that per se with romanticism is that I was thinking of some of the romantic poets, British romantic poets who were unfortunately, well, yeah, you know, explicitly have a dichotomy and reasons on the wrong side. But they don't understand, yeah. you know. You know, they've they've got a, a notion of reason that isn't actually about uh, thinking. But it's cold, you know. We murdered to dissect and that sort of thing. So I think they would be pretty uncomfortable if you called it what they're doing reason. On the other hand, they could individualism. They could accept my life, my choices. It's mine, and they would not have thought of emotionalism as being this with mysticism. So, but again, that's, that's part of why we need philosophy because philosophy gets you out of traps like that. Out yeah, of thinking. The that it should be, yeah. I mean, yeah. it goes right up to man of La Mancha, uh, is all about, well, you can be sane and rational and boring, or you can be gloriously romantic and insane. And that's the choice ideals versus actual truth. And uh, it's, it's all over art, that reason-emotion dichotomy. But in fact, philosophically, it's reason unleashed that leads to uh, the emotionality. It's the rational people who have the strong emotions. I mean, irrational people yes. can too, but it's people who, who think and who are aware that have the strong emotions, not the people, not Joe Sixpack. Uh, well, because they're in contact with reality and, you know, as opposed to a splintered reality, it's going to let them down. That, that Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And unfortunately, a lot of, some of the romantic artists didn't know that. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah really didn't know that. And, 
Yeah, we murdered to dissect um, is Coleridge, right? Or is it Wordsworth? Wordsworth, I think. I think it's Wordsworth. Yeah, yeah Wordsworth. Coleridge uh, was an admirer of the Middle Ages, and and all the poets had the Byron, of course, is the famous for the Byronic universe, the malevolent universe, struggle and fail, but at least you struggle. Uh, but there are ex exceptions. There are there are those who don't make a dichotomy. Few. Oh. So the. Uh, or did you want to? Yeah, I was just going to comment on something. Uh, you know, Ayn Rand used to say, you know, that Pushkin was a great poet, though untranslatable. And one interest, I'm sure you know this, but one interesting thing is that uh, there's an opera based on, on Yegin, but the opera, even though it's using the same storyline, it's, it's in a different spirit. And um, one, of the, one of the songs that's going to be performed is uh, Lansky's aria from that. And what's interesting, well, to me, it's interesting that, uh, you know, that the the musical version of it is actually romantic but in the russian context after that scene kind of the narrator contact con says something on the road we've had enough of that kind of romanticism in other words undercutting it so i i, I thought it's sort of interesting that when you have the musical version you have you know Tchaikovsky finding in it something that he could um, present as romantic, uh, which is not what, not the way that Pushkin wrote it. I guess maybe you don't know the opera, but um, it's it's good music. I think it's very good. It's good music. But you wouldn't expect uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect a poem and the opera to be the same, as we know from some of the Hugo plays that got turned into operas. Anyway, that's it. I, I just um, was was thinking about uh, the, the way that um, romanticism can mean different things and can be undercut or celebrated. Yeah, she wrote that article, Bootleg Romanticism, about yes. the, the self-apologetic tongue-in-cheek romanticists, like in James Bond in a later uh, James Bond, well, later, after the first or second one, it became uh, campy because they, well, maybe because uh, they were embarrassed to be actually presenting a hero, a glamorous hero. Yeah, that, that sounds related to one of the common criticisms that some people make against romanticism, which in short is life isn't really like that right it's 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 unrealistic it's escapist art uh and for that reason they're critical of it what would you say to in response to that kind of criticism of romanticism i think ayn rand had the right line whose life isn't like that if your life isn't like that in principle then you're not living it now I say in principle, yeah. you're not going to go out 
slay dragons or something, but you slay the metaphorical dragons of the things that are holding you back. Yeah, I think you've, yeah, that's one of the principal things you could say is speak for yourself. You know, your life's not like that. Um, I'm sure you, you remember one of those, someone uh, said, you know, that's sort of what happens in your books. Those things don't really happen. And she said, you know, tell them for me that it happened in the fountainhead. You know, in, in, in her world, that's, that's what happens. What um, Mike, Mike Berliner had, I, th I thought a lo lovely article about Ayn Rand and operetta and the music. And he talked about, you know, people might say it's escape. It's actually, he's actually a primary. It was, it was an escape to reality because there, there was the reality of what that music represented as opposed to what she saw around her in Petersburg. So I, you could even say that uh, escape is sort of a derogatory term, but in fact, if you were a prisoner, wouldn't you want to escape? I mean, if, if, you, if, if there are circumstances around you that are not of your choice, you want a world of your choice and um and, and art is a virtual world of your choice and that's the way things really are so i didn't yeah I, but it comes back yeah. to the faculty of volition right that yes uh, right if you're if you're in charge of your life make it what you want to be don't, yes. don't, uh, don't say, well, life isn't like that. And romantic art inspires you. It shows you what you can achieve, even if you scale it down, because you're not going to be a genius like John Galder or Howard Rourke. But in the battles that you are fighting to do what it is you want to do and not what you're supposed to do, it's the same struggle. And it's inspiring to read about the great uh, achievers who, who triumphed despite overwhelming odds against them. I think we need to also understand that uh, some romantic art and literature certainly doesn't involve tragedy where people make wrong choices, but that's part of how mm. it works. That if you get to make choices and you make wrong, wrong choices, there are going to be consequences and there, there are no get out of hell free cards. You know, um, I mean, if you betray your values or make wrong choices, they're going to be problems, and that's that's us. Some romantic artists did give us tragedies in which people took a wrong course and had the consequences. But that also is a picture of a world in which values matter, and loyalty to your values matters, and betrayal of your values matters. You can't say that doesn't count. It does count. Everything counts. That's one of the great things about art, right? It's stylized. It's selective. Everything counts. Yeah. Everything is included. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Shoshana, you recently taught a course in the Ayn Rand University on Dostoevsky's crime and punishment. And that strikes me as that might be a good example of what you're talking about there, yeah. because Ayn Rand considered Dostoevsky a romantic artist, right? Even though it's, you wouldn't really read Dostoevsky and think this is inspiring. This is, I admire these people, uh, or no, at least not primarily. No. Now, Cry and Punishment is not a how-to book. Uh, you're not supposed <laughs> to read Cry and Punishment. Just saying. Well, 
you know, you don't want to be like Raskolnikov, but you see how Raskolnikov, why Raskolnikov got to the position he was in through the thinking he didn't do. Okay. And um, Dostoevsky is another one of these, unfortunately, who is explicitly attacking reason. And it's because he doesn't understand what reason is, you know, and um, he, if you remember, well, if you've read the book, there's a scene near the end where Raskolnikov has a dream about um, a world in which people are sure that they're right when they aren't, and it's quite destructive. Well, Dostoevsky thinks that can happen. People can think, and the more thinking they do, the it ruins their lives, which of course is not true. But yeah, uh, uh, crime and punishment is complete. It's very interesting because uh, it takes a while to see why Ras how Raskolnikov acted as he did and why he acted as he did and his initial explanations are not consistent with what he says later on so it's a, as they say you know it's not it's not a who done it's a why done it but you, absolutely he doesn't just get hit by a truck you know it's not a novel of arbitrary suffering and in general romantic art the the arbitrary or what I used to call the accidental is minimized and what's important would be the choices that people make on the basis of their values and on their ability to hold on to what's important in, in such a way that they get what they want or don't, as for example, Wynand and Fountainhead, tragic. So the conference is called Resurrecting Romanticism. And so that sort of implies that romanticism has died uh, in some way, or, and that, uh, but that it can come back, that it can be revived. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on uh, what, where did it go if it, if it went somewhere? Um, why did it go away? And what would it take for us to, uh, to see it come back again? Hmm. Well, I, I think that uh, in, in some ways you could say that uh, great works of art, they didn't get destroyed, they're still here, but that uh, they're, there's uh, sometimes a cynical attitude and things that ought to be appreciated or not appreciated enough. So I guess that, that's the way I think about it um, in that um, even artists I think of as major, you know, Victor Hugo's major, you know, he's the big hero of French literature, but he's not read as much as he ought to be. I mean, my goodness. So I, I, I think that uh, you could look at it both from the standpoint of production and consumption. And, you know, was, isn't a, would an artist want to do something unironic and heroic or be concerned that it would be necessary to apologize for it, you know, like bootleg romanticism. But I, I guess I, you know, be, because works of art, their reputations go up and down, but they themselves are not gone. Uh, I never really give up. So I don't think of romanticism as dead. Um, I think that the, the title, 
new romanticism yeah. is that the, the old things are, are, are there, but there's damn little uh, new romantic art. And uh, it's not, even when it's, when it exists, it's, it's small scale, not grand scale. Um, what could you point? I'm trying to think. Well, Capaletti, uh, who I was going to show until I learned we can't share a screen, but I could, I could turn the camera, but I think that's a little awkward. Uh, music. I don't know of any romantic music after Rachmaninoff and the, the, the show music, uh, but that's only a little about after 1969, there's not much in the way of music in, even in the theater, musical theater. Uh, maybe um, Andrew Lloyd Webber and um, Les Mis Productions. The production had some good music. That's not his show. Yeah, he's... No, no. That's yeah. it, Andrew Lloyd yeah. Webber and the and, guys who did Les Mis. I don't know who they're yeah. there. I, I'm not a big fan of Les Mis, but other people know music better than I are. So I'm willing to bring him in. And I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber is on the scale of Richard Rogers, or Cole Porter, but it's tuneful. So yeah, I think there's no new romantic art. Uh, and what will it take to bring it back? People, growing up with an understanding that they are in charge of their own lives, which means a better educational system uh, and the unaccountable emergence of self-made, entirely self-made people, which you cannot predict. It's come up, I think, in, in this conversation, some that, so Ayn Rand has her definition of romanticism as the art that is based on the free will premise. Um, her, her essay, What is Romanticism? She, I think she talks mainly in there about literature, um, but we've been talking about romanticism in literature and in other forms of art. Um, I, I'm curious how you're applying that idea of the, the free will premise outside of literature where I, I can see it as like, do the characters have control over their own choices or not? Well, since I'm the one who's doing it, let me uh, wait in here. It's, it is difficult to do it in painting. I just have a, a sense that some paintings are presenting larger than life, ideal concretes and the same in sculpture. Um, how that relates to the faculty of volition, it's only from the fact that you can't have somebody 
who is a self-made soul unless you can make your own soul. So it's kind of by deduction. In music, I think it's generally, so applying romanticism to painting is a little vexed, okay? The visual arts. But in, in music, it's there's a romantic period of music and it's generally accepted as such. And it's characterized by a sense of freedom, a sense of, of large emotional content, not just an architectonic arrangement of satisfying, intellectually satisfying relationships of notes. So um, freedom is evident in the Romantic composers. Now here's the um, paradox. Ayn Rand regarded Beethoven as deterministic, as fatalistic. And yet certainly Beethoven, well, I shouldn't say certainly. Conventionally, Beethoven is taken as romantic. And I myself don't know whether to regard him as romantic. I don't take a position on that. And I don't hear a lot of fatalism in Beethoven's music, but she did, and she was a smart cookie. With, with I music, think he did. Didn't he, didn't he say that, you know, the da-da-da-da is fate? I think he, he did endorse some kind of fatalism, but I, I'm not an expert on him at all. Yeah, but that doesn't, that, that doesn't sort of count. I mean, Victor Hugo used to talk uh, about yeah, yeah, you know, Anon in Notre Dame, remember? Which didn't mean that he actually thought that fate was in charge. Just saying. You remember oh, that? yeah. In the, in the, in the yeah, Anon K yeah. is the theme, the is the theme right. of it. Yeah. yeah. Fate. Yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So we, because we, people we, had a, a wrong view of free will, because they had a wrong view of reason, because they had a, an inadequate view of concepts, they could think that free will meant something very different from what it actually means. So it, it, what it actually means is the ability to take charge of your mind and focus on reality and focus on your values. Uh, but it was taken to be the ability to act arbitrarily. And it's easy to, you know, if that's your view of free will, it's easy to say, well, I'm a determinist then, because I, I don't think things happen arbitrarily e either in my life or in the world. With music, doesn't, isn't there also an issue that Ayn Rand thought we don't have an objective vocabulary for how music works? And so there, there's some uncertainty as to the meaning and evaluation of a work of music. I, I think, Harry, you're planning on, on talking some about that, uh, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She said, it's every man for himself until an objective aesthetics of music has been defined, and it hasn't. But I think we can do something in that direction. I don't know be sufficient to say fatalistic or volitional. Well, I certainly am not able to uh, resolve this issue, but there she does talk about intelligibility. And 
it's you know visual arts can be intelligible and music can be intelligible and you can follow it uh, you see where the cadences are coming and that has to do with encouraging the use of the active mind they the the, the essay she added to the romantic manifesto for the for the for the paperback art and cognition she talks about art as uh, you know stylizing one's consciousness and as a psychopathological matter and how you learn to understand things. So it is, it's related to volition, which is about how you use your mind. But the tech, the technical connection and how that is applied and what the examples would be and what the progression would be and so on. That's, that's not, it's something she didn't explain and not something I could explain, but that I think would be important and useful to understand and to appreciate, especially with examples. That would be, that'd be a good subject. Maybe you'll help us with that, music, Harry. Yeah, music has to be intelligible without complete predictability. So great music, you think, oh, when you listen, oh, that's, I wasn't expecting that, but now that it's happened, it makes complete sense. That's what great music does. And what boring music does is make you say, yeah, 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 of course it would go there. And of course it would go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no, there's no yeah. challenge to it intellectually. Yeah. Yeah. Same old, same old. Mm-hmm. So if people want to, uh, to learn more about romanticism in music and the visual arts, of course, that's what the, uh, the resurrecting romanticism conference is about. Um, I'm, would love to hear a preview of some of the things that, uh, you're looking forward to or things that, that, you know, are going to come up at that conference that, uh, people might be interested in, you know, signing up to see for themselves. Well, the aesthetics of yeah. music is definitely going to come up. And that's a uh, fascinating topic that Ayn Rand had a hypothesis about. And I have a supplementary hypothesis about. I think it's supplementary. I hope it's not contradictory. But I don't think it is. And uh, composers are going to be there. At least one, David Barry, is a composer. And uh, he's one of the organizers of the conference and musicologists are going to be attending. So there'll be a lot of discussion about music and what makes it work, which is, I think, really fascinating topic. And performances, because, you know, not just about, but you actually hear it and Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. And um, there's, I think up on the website, there's probably a list of what's going to happen at the, the different, um, that's not my part. That's, that's the part I'm just going to sit and enjoy. I'm not presenting it. And uh, Sandra Shaw is going to be talking about sculpture. And uh, Diane Durante, you know, who does paint, is going to be analyzing paintings. And mostly it's going to, well, it's a combination of our actually being able to experience these things and hearing about them from people who have looked at them more times than we have, and with both a technical and historical perspective. And it's um, no, no concurrent scheduling, 
you know, you, you don't have to choose between this and that when you go and it'll be immersive and we'll be in at a university. It's, um, it's over Columbus Day weekend because that's when the students aren't there. So we'll, we'll have, we'll have the university in a lovely concert hall. It's the seventh, eighth and ninth and pretty full days. But you, did you put the, the web the link to the website up? Yeah. So the, yeah, here's the link to the website. It's, uh, ethospg.com. Um, you can register for the conference on the, on that site. So if you're interested in learning more about romanticism and music and the visual arts, this is a, this is a great opportunity that's coming up October 7th through 9th uh, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, so you can see the, the link on your screen or in the description. It is ethospg.com. I'm all out of questions for today, but I, if you have any final thoughts on uh, romanticism or any of the, the issues we've discussed, I'd love to hear them. Well, I guess the final thought that I had is that one of, you know, I'm, I'm in literature, I teach literature, and one of the reasons I like doing that is that I do get to pick things I like, uh, you know, good stuff. I mean, when you teach history, you got to do everything that happened. But uh, when, when you're doing art, you can concentrate on the good stuff. And it, uh, it appears to me that this conference is going to be three days of the good stuff. And, you know, with a perspective and from people who, some of whom are practitioners as well as um, knowledgeable estheticians and observers. So, I'm looking forward myself to going and some of the questions that you asked that I couldn't answer about, you know, how do we, how do we see volition in visual arts that other people will be able to answer better than I could, I hope. All right. Uh, those were all the questions I had for today, but I did want to share a couple of resources if people want to learn more about romanticism and Ayn Rand's view of it. Um, of course, we've already mentioned the conference, the Resurrecting Romanticism Conference in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, the URL, I've mentioned it already, ethospg.com. It's on your screen and uh, it will be in the description as well. That's October 7th through 9th. Um, also, as we said earlier on in the discussion, the best resource if you want to learn about Ayn Rand's theory of art is to read what Ayn Rand had to say about it and where she said a lot about art is the Romantic Manifesto. Uh, so this is her book This covers all sorts of issues in art. Her gives her theory of art, why it matters, why we need it, what it does for us, um, along with a number of other different issues. Uh, so that's really, really well worth reading if you want to understand her theory and appreciate uh, art more yourself. Um, also, if you want to go even deeper on her theory of art, if, you, if you've read her works and you, you want to read a, kind of a scholarly presentation of them, uh, Dr. Benzwanger has written an, an article or a, a chapter in the Companion to Ayn Rand uh, on the objectivist aesthetics. Uh, this is a, a scholarly resource where you can really uh, you know, learn, go deep into the issue, issues and the, the theory uh, of art that Ayn Rand uh, came up with. Um, and and, and Tora Beckman has an article in there on romanticism. Yes, 
Yes, that's true. Also, yeah. the next chapter is by Tora Buckman, and it's an, it's a chapter that's on romanticism. So in that book, you have two great resources uh, on art. Uh, so thanks for joining us. I We will be back next week with another episode on another topic. Uh, if you have any uh, comments, feedback, questions about this topic or ideas for other New Ideal episodes, uh, you can email us at newideal at einrand.org. Uh, we read all of your, uh, your messages and we respond to many of them. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, we appreciate it if you would uh, subscribe to our channel on YouTube. That will enable you to get more of our content. And if you click the bell icon, you'll get notified whenever we post any new videos or go live. Um, also, uh, liking and commenting on the episode uh, always helps with the algorithm. And if you like what you saw and want other people to see it, uh, we appreciate it if you, you know, share on your social media as well, uh, whether that's Facebook or wherever else you share, uh, you share links. Um, thank you all again for watching and thank you very much to, uh, to Harry and Shoshana for joining me today for this conversation. Really enjoyed talking with you and uh, have a great day. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.